are back. Welcome to season two, episode 13 of More Than a Title. I'm your host, Jared Thomas, and we have an exciting show lined up for you guys with a special guest. But before I introduce this brother, um, I just want to take a second to dedicate this show to a few people, man. I just want to dedicate this to my family. You know, I love you guys. My boys, Jameer and Case, love you guys. Daddy loves you. Anything's possible. And lastly, to all you guys, the supporters, for continuing to help grow this platform. Like, you guys really keep me going, and, and honestly, I mean that. So, you know, before I get emotional and all that stuff, man, let's get into the chat because we got so many things we got to talk about today. So let's introduce our special guest today. This brother here is a businessman, entrepreneur, philanthropist, family man who has served in the entertainment, music, sports, and production industries for over 30 years. He's a minority owner of the Washington Nationals Baseball Club and currently serves as chairman of the Washington Nationals Founding Partners Group. For 16 years, uh, this brother served as an executive vice president and general manager of Centric, which was formerly known as BTJ, which was a network targeting African-Americans and multicultural adults that was owned by Viacom. And in 2018, this brother also launched uh, the Washington, D.C., Office of Liquid Soul, which is the agency behind the marketing promotion of blockbuster films like Black Panther and Wrinkle in Time. And also, this brother has multiple awards for his distinguished work, including Emmys, Anemic Vision Award, and also produced two Grammy-nominated solo albums for B.B. Wine's Live Up Close in Church. So, let's you know, I could keep going too, man. <laughs> I'm going to save it for the pod, but let's give a warm introduction to, this, to our special guest today, uh, Mr. Paxson Baker. How are you, brother? Thank you, brother. Healthy and positive of this end and glad to be able to spend some time with you. Likewise, man. It is it is an absolute honor, man, especially me being a young professional from the Bronx, man, and everything we've we've, you know, accomplished and overcame, man. But uh, I, I want to a quick question. I'm going to keep it real right off the gate, man. How do you, mm-hmm. you do speaking engagements like this and you hear your accomplishments back? Do you ever look back and be like, damn, I actually did this? man? <laughs> well, I guess from my end, uh, thankful. And that would be the the first word would be thankful and uh, thankful, appreciative. I've been overwhelmingly blessed to work with just a great group of professionals for decades of time now. And uh, like in the process with the developing just a phenomenal degree of trust, uh, the sister who's here in the office with me, Wanda Edmonds, uh, Wanda and I have been working with each other pretty much like close to 30 years now. Uh, now the brother Derek Lewis and I, we, we've been with each other 32, 33 years and my business partner, uh, who's also my accountant, he and I are like 28, 28, 29 years. And so like the core group of people who are around me have had a long, wonderful history of time with, and we've traveled together. We've faced tragedies together. We've, uh, been blessed with this amazing uh, adventures. We pretty much have been around, uh, without exaggeration, the whole of the world together and have seen and developed uh, friends. A lot of the artists that we work with, people like uh, Jeffrey Osborne, Freddie Jackson, Herbie Hancock, uh, Wenton Marcellus, uh... You said that Paxton? I think it froze up. Jared? Yep, still here. You still here. I hear you now. Sorry, y'all. We might be having a little tech technical difficulties. Technology, don't do me wrong now. <laughs> Are we still with each other? Yeah, we're good. Okay, perfect. Okay. I, I lost vision there for a second, but I, like artists like uh, Najee, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Osborne, Herbie Hancock, Went Marcellus. Uh, Kenny G, Dave Cause, uh, uh, trying to think uh, who else? Uh, Carlos Santana, uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Uh, relationships of twenty plus years that we've worked with, and, and uh, at one point we were producing about eight music festivals around the world on an annual basis, and we had a good, good solid group of musicians who just kind of stuck with us, and we stuck with them, and. Uh, they've been lifelong friendships. Uh, when we produced the Soul Train Awards, same thing. Uh, Dion Warwick, uh, Nita Baker, uh, Shaka Khan, uh, Charlie Wilson, uh, Ron Isley, like literally decades long friendships and relationships. And so uh, that's a blessing to me more than like, you know, more than something I'm proud of necessarily. Uh, thankful for the relationships. Eddie Levert, I should mention, Harry Belafonte. Uh, just a blessing. And to be able to work with people like that on a consistent basis, travel the world at the same time 
And uh, to be able to have friendships like that and see those great musicians go out on stage and perform is you just kind of pinch yourself multiple times over because it's such an amazing thing to have been able to be a part of. So that's the kind of more of it would be to answer your question to kind of like pinching yourself sometimes that you actually get to be a part of this. And so that's that's the blessing. That has to be an amazing feeling, man, because one one thing we always talk about on the show, Paxton, is relationships of currency and really like how much you have to value those relationships. It's one thing to have the skills and expertise, but also have the relationships and the team behind you to help propel your career, help propel others around you. That's what it's all about, man. And, and you know what's crazy? I was doing the research on you. You actually got in the industry the year I was born, brother, 1988. Wow. Oh, and I think it was, wow. like, yeah, man, on oh, 1988, brother. So you started early. I believe it was... Uh, it was a PK, right? It was a PKB Arts and Entertainment, right? That later turned into Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, actually, what I got to predate you just a little bit because I started doing shows in, in college at Temple University wow. uh, where the core of my career began, and that was in 84. So uh, that would have been kind of really like more of the start. I started as a student, but as far as getting paid professionally, it would have been 88. But as a student, I started doing shows in 84, and... Uh, uh, one of my first mentors in the music business, a uh, brother named Spencer Weston, he was at the Afro-American Hist- Historical Museum in Philadelphia. He managed Sun Ra, uh, the great jazz great Sun Ra. And I built my friendship with him. I called him my surrogate grandfather. And uh, I worked with Sun Ra for a number of years. And that was just an amazing experience. And then there's an African brother named Fela Anukulapo Kuti, which a lot of people know about, but some people don't know about. And he was considered the world's most dangerous musician. And he spoke out uh, against corruption in a unique way in Nigeria back in the late 70s and throughout the 80s. And I got a chance to work with Sun Ra, while I was in co- Sun Ra and uh, Fela Kuti while I was in college. And that was, for me, it's been just an amazing ride because of the people I've had the opportunity to work with and Absolutely. the locations I've been able to go to to produce music and, and uh, like, Earn, earn a living doing something that you'd pinch yourself to do and you probably would do for free, but yeah. you get paid for it. So, you know, why not? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's, that's the amazing part of the story, brother. So was that part of... Jared, I'm not sure uh, about... I, I lost your connection for a second. You said, is that what? No, I said, I said, because um, basically for me, man, my, my dream, I was a musician. I did music when I started. I was a basketball player. I was all city, all state, all that stuff, man. We were rocking. And I kind of snuck in the back door with sales. But how, was this always your passion to put on events and music? Like, What part of that was in your life? And how did you kind of lead into that, right? And like, how does one, how did that start? Uh, started with relationships for, for the, the international. Uh, so let me back up. So in college, I started doing shows, uh, student-run shows. And the first concert I ever did was with Rashid Ali, who was John Coltrane's uh, last drummer uh, in the great Coltrane band uh, before he passed. And uh, Rashid was literally the first concert I ever did. And that was just an amazing, great way to start my career. I uh, had a chance to work with other great artists, uh, Sonny Fortune, uh, one of the bad, baddest jazz alto players that had ever ever hit the scene. Uh, another brother named Rufus Harley, who was the world's uh, only jazz um, bagpipe player out of Philadelphia. Uh, Philadelphia had a, an amazing array of talents. I went to Temple University and had an amazing array of talents and great musicians mm-hmm. that were from there and still live there while I was uh, coming up in the 80s. So... Uh, for me, it's been one thing leads to another, leads to another. So I met Kevin Eubanks uh, uh, on the jazz scene in Philadelphia. Kevin ended up being the longtime uh, band leader for Jay Leno and The Tonight Show for about 20 years or so. He followed Branford Marcellus, uh, mm-hmm. another friend of a long time. And uh, from there, from uh, producing shows in Philadelphia, Kevin introduces me to uh, uh, a sister who was running the uh, city of Atlanta's uh, cultural affairs department and I moved there and booked the talent for the uh, 1988 uh, black music festival in Atlanta mm-hmm. and national black arts festival and also uh, the city's work in Grant Park and the Montreal Atlanta international music festival 
ran into Philip Michael Thomas while I was there, and Philip was still doing Miami Vice, a uh, longtime family friend. I was born in Los Angeles uh, from California, ended up moving to Miami to work with Philip. And while I was doing shows at his theater, a lady who was attending the theater ended up introducing me to the uh, government of Aruba, the tourist board, mm-hmm. produced the Aruba Jazz Festival from 1982. Aruba was a Dutch colony. Another friend introduced me to uh, a guy named Hans Lundstein, who owned the Drum Jazz Festival in Amsterdam, uh, and made an introduction. I got the gig booking that. I'm now in Europe. Uh, ran into a number of promoters over there who did tours. I started booking tours with them with musicians. And so things just continued to lead from Aruba, met the, uh, met the uh, tour sport in St. Lucia. And then we produced that festival from 92 to 2014 mm-hmm. and things lead. So from St. Lucia, uh, Barbados, Trinidad festivals, Trinidad Pan Jazz, Barbados Painted Jazz festivals, start touring these, we, we toured the, in the late nineties, we toured the Fugees, we toured Brian McKnight, Wynton Marcellus, Herbie Hancock, uh, Kenny G through uh, uh, Gloria Estefan, through the Caribbean and the Northern Rim of South America. So things open up. That's has been kind of how my life has worked is that like the whole thing about one thing leads to another, leads to another. That has been my life story. And so once again, using the word blessing, that would have been kind of how I would describe that run. So while in the process of all of that, that's how I met BET. They came down and shot the 91 Aruba Festival and then became one of the anchor sponsors for the 92 St. Lucia Jazz Festival. Mm. And I ended up working uh, with BT from 91 to 99. They were my client. And in uh, 98, gave me the opportunity to uh, come aboard and run the uh, BT Jazz, which was the second network, which I had helped them start in 2006, uh, mm. uh, the Jazz Channel, BT Jazz, the Jazz Channel. And I ended up selling my production company to Bob Johnson in wow. 2000. And in 2001, Viacom bought BT and it became a public company at that time. And they've been in the Viacom family uh, since then. And with Viacom, I was given additional opportunities to uh, build a wide array of relationships across, at the time, it was about a $27 billion company. And wow. uh, that just really opened up just a whole load of different opportunities once again one of which was launching the uh, Soul Train Awards, relaunching the Soul Train Awards, which had been off the air. And we relaunched the Soul Train Awards in 2009. And that was truly one of pinching yourself over and over and over. I ended up meeting Don Cornelius and had a good conversation with him. And he put his hand on my shoulder. I was asking him to come back on the show and be honored. And he put his, it was in the dressing room for the OJs the year they got honored by BET for a lifetime achievement. And I put his hand on my shoulder and said, young brother, this is, this is yours now. I'm passing the baton on to you. So you take it and run it, put your creativity into it. I did what I did, whether it's your turn to, to, uh, to make it work now. So uh, that to me was uh, the, the story in the Bible of, uh, of Elijah passing his cloak on to Elisha. <laughs> and uh, I felt that momentous from it, from Don Cornelius saying that to me. And Wow. And we, we set records for the five years that we produced the show. Every year we set records in in uh, viewing for the show. So it was a pretty amazing, amazing that's, run there as well. That's amazing, too. One, uh, rest in peace to Don Cornelius, man. He's the GOAT. Um, and just, just that alone, right? Do you ever feel that pressure when you're doing a project like that? So, like, you're relaunching a Soul Train Awards and something that's as nostalgic as Soul Train and what it means to our culture. What was your mindset going into that? to literally just do exactly what he said was to to spin it and put our spin and our uh our taste on it yeah growing up looking some looking at an iconic show like that which i did on saturday mornings it was i learned uh, like you know everything from how to dance to how to look to put your you play together (laughs) you back together the beautiful sisters who were on that uh, every week and uh, you know, picking out which one you got a chance to hope to meet and et cetera, et cetera. So uh, now for my end, I, I wouldn't necessarily say pressure from from trying to outdo somebody else, but from my end uh, to do your best and to put your spin on it and your look, your look to it 
And for me, all the cultural things that you learned for me from doing shows in Africa, from doing shows in South Africa, in Ghana, in Morocco, to Indonesia, to uh, throughout the Caribbean, like everything that you've learned, you bring all those sensitivities to any project that you do. And you then it's your spin and your color on it. I had a great group of people, brother named Bart Phillips, who was creative director, Tammy Willis, Erisley, who worked on the show with me. Uh, there was an amazing group of people who worked on it. And so all of us brought our cultural aesthetic to the show and to projects that we worked on. And we were successful and like the whole expression, the proof is in the pudding. Yeah. yeah. Our ratings outdid everybody else's and uh, pound for pound, dollar for dollar for the project, the budgets that we had to work with, we, we delivered and it, yeah. it, it showed itself out by way how well the ratings did, but in addition to our ad sales department at BT on how well they sold the show and uh, being able to monetize something. So as an entrepreneur, one of my favorite things in the whole span of professionalism, entrepreneurialism, career, et cetera, is to come up with an idea and to be able to bring that idea to fore and to be able to monetize it and for people to benefit from it. So that is to me one of the most exciting things I could that I've ever achieved in my career. And the Soul Train Awards were a part of that. That's a gem right there, brother. And and as you're speaking, the gems that I'm getting from that, brother, one, the reason why I succeeded, because it was a part of you. It was part of the culture. You grew up on it. You knew what you would have wanted to see from your show. You knew what we wanted to see. You knew your audience. And for anybody listening, that's a key to any show is knowing your audience and knowing what people want to see out of that. And you just executed, put a strategy together and made it happen. So so congrats to you, brother. And then- Yeah, yeah thank you, Jerry. But one thing I would add to that is- is Don Cornelius, one of the things that he did such an amazing job of in the original Soul Train TV series, which was the longest syndicated running show of its kind in yeah. American TV history, yeah. is uh, he always entered, he introduced a new act and then he had kind of a legendary act in the show. And so you'd have Shalimar, which was actually kind of breaking out in real time from the dancers from the Soul Train Awards. Jody Watley was a dancer. Uh, Howard Hewitt was, was added later, but Jeffrey Daniels, who was one of the best dancers that ever was on Soul Train Awards, or on Soul Train Show. So you yeah. had Jody and Jeffrey. So the Shalimar grew out of the Soul Train dancers. And then Howard Hewitt was added later. And, but that was a new act. But on the same show, he might have James Brown or Marvin Gaye. And so for us, when we, when we did the show, it was like, okay, well, how can we uh, how can we take that model and add to it? So we introduced that. That was uh, Miguel was artist of the year. Mm-hmm. It was his first uh, award. I remember seeing him go up to the to the microphone and kind of apologize and say, "Wow, man, I didn't expect this. So I didn't prepare a speech or anything." But you know, wow, wow, wow. And I kept saying, "He really is tongue tied. <laughs> He's never gotten an award before." So. Uh, so uh, Miguel and then Bruno Mars got his first award on Soul Train. And the, uh, both of those were in Atlanta when they, when they won. And uh, we introduced uh, Chrisette Michelle uh, on, on BET Jazz. We introduced Jill Scott. There was a lot of artists that we broke. And then we're putting them with Shaka, who was in the original Soul Train. We put them with Ron Isley. We put them with Dionne Warwick, who uh, Don Cornelius called up Dionne Warwick to, to put together the first Soul Train Awards, the first yeah. one. And she yeah. told that story when she got her, her uh, uh, Legend Award. And so you're pairing Cool in the Gang, Earth, Wind and Fire with these new acts that are coming through. And that was the original vision of Soul Train. So for us, it was unlocking Don Cornelius's vision, putting our spin on it and putting a modern spin on it. And that's just what we did. And we were successful with it. Yeah, that's amazing. And I will say, want somebody from the from the crowd, one of my brothers. They asked who hosted that show. Do you remember? Uh, the very first one, or the one with uh, when the bridge and the gap with the with the older talent and newer talent. I think it was. The oh, one. so so yes, I can answer that question really easily. So for uh, in two thousand nine and two thousand ten, Terrence Howard and Chiraji Henson were the hosts for Soul Train. In mm. two thousand eleven, it was uh, Cedric the Entertainer, and. Uh, and then Anthony Anderson 
and for for when we produced it, Anthony Anderson, and then uh, and then uh, uh, Wendy Wendy Williams. Those were the hosts, and then the year after I left, uh, Erica Badu uh, hosted it. I, I remember that year. I remember Erica did it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and so and so let's segue into that, brother. So you know, mm-hmm. after the year um, Erica hosted, you you left the show. What what happened from there? How did your you know uh, journey? What else happened from your journey from that point? So, uh, my my career at BT as a professional spanned uh, twenty six years. So I, I was often asked by people like, "Well, kind of like, why did you leave?" Um, I, I consider myself now a young sixty two year old, but at the <laughs> time when I left, and when I and I was fifty four. Uh, 54, 55 when I left, I had done it for over almost half of my life. And um, I had a wonderful run at BT and at Viacom, uh, had wonderful relationships with the employees there and uh, the executives at Viacom. I ended up becoming chair- chairman of the Viacom Marketing Council, which was all the companies that Viacom earned mm-hmm. uh, owned. I was the first African-American in that position, first and only African-American in that position. Wow. And um, I interfaced across all of the chief marketing officers of all the different brands at Viacom. I had a wonderful career, but prior to going to Viacom, I was an in, I was an entrepreneur and I owned my own business, which I sold to Bob Johnson. That was always my goal to emerge on the other side of it and get back into being a uh, kind of a smaller entrepreneur. I considered myself an entrepreneur at Viacom, mm-hmm. and. Oh no, not technology. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. My bad, y'all. Anybody watch. But while I was going through that process, uh, in 2006, I bought into the ownership group with the Lerner family of the Washington Nationals baseball team. Uh, when I left in 2015, mm. uh, I had already uh, had the opportunity to join the ownership group of the Washington Castles, which was World Team Tennis. Uh, that year, uh, the Castles won their sixth championship. It was my first uh, championship ring and championship experience that I had in 2019. It was the Nationals winning the World Series. In 2021, it was the Washington Spirit and the National Women's Soccer League winning the 2021-2022 championship. So I've been now a part of three different ownership groups that have won championships and I I uh, I had other things that I wanted to do, and it didn't. It, it wasn't continuing to work at the same company. It was like let me come back out and put my entrepreneurial shingle back up, and I've never looked back. That's amazing. So, That's yeah. Amazing. So where, where did the so where did the idea right? Because you went from entertainment, you're mostly doing like events. You're mostly you know the music entertainment like how did it transition to sports and how did you how does one go about creating the funding group or buying into a a a major sports team what is that process like brother so so uh i from an entrepreneurial perspective i I read something which i stuck with the whole of the time i was at viacom and that was i worked for myself at bt i worked for myself at viacom and um, I never stopped being an entrepreneur. I was an entrepreneur as part of a much bigger business enterprise. Mm. So when uh, things came up, like being able to buy into the ownership group of the baseball team, one, you have to be prepared to have savings to be able to have money to do investments. That's a core piece. And I can't challenge, I can't challenge uh uh, people enough to save money. So when opportunities come up, if you're not prepared, it doesn't really mean a whole lot. So the preparedness part is a critical piece to it of like actually having money that you have to invest in opportunities. If not, for the most part, you will continue to work for someone the whole of your life. And there's nothing wrong with that. I made great money and I really loved what I did. So there was a deep passion as a part of it. But my achievements were achievements at BT and at Viacom, of which there were many. So like relaunching the Soul Train brand, uh, produced the Source Awards for two years, produced yeah. the Billboard BT Jazz Awards, and phenomenal opportunities, produced the BT Experience, which was the live festival, which led into the BT Awards. 
yeah. phenomenal opportunities to do. And I dug being there, but I didn't own any of that. And so when other things come up, if you have money that you can put into it or pool money, then that gives you a broader array of something. And when something is sold, you get the opportunity to make a bigger bang from it because you put money into it. So examples would be um, I bought into the uh, Nationals group with the Learner family in 2006. Uh, we paid $450 million for the team at the time. The team is now for sale at $2.5 billion Ooh. 16 years later. Uh, the Washington Spirit, which we participated in uh, over the last two years, uh, bought into the ownership group at $7 million. The team sold for $35 million. And so as a partner in those, you get a return on that commensurate to your investment into the project. So uh, it's something I valued. Once I did it once, I knew I wanted to do it again. I knew I wanted to do it again. <laughs> and relationships are everything. So my dentist, Dr. Ronnie Rosenberg, introduced me to the Lerner family because wow. he did their teeth. And that's a, that was my first introduction. And once, once doors open in that regard, you will find, much like I, I told you about the festivals on how we grew relationships and produced more festivals, it's the same thing for business opportunities when they come to you. One comes, I guarantee you invariably, if you do a good job at that one, another one will come. And if you're once again in a financial position to make additional investments, then you'll be able to share in more and like, continue to build profit and uh, continue to build wealth. And that's amazing, man. Like you said, and one thing I heard from that is the savings and being prepared for opportunities, man. And the relationships, once again, it always goes back to relationships, guys. Like it is currency and it can take you so far just being a humble person, being a good person, standing on your morals, your principles and looking out for people and doing right, man. And that's that's what it seems like you did, man. So what advice would you, would you give to somebody like myself, Paxton, or any other young professional looking out that's how do you maintain those relationships, right? Because we talk a lot about building those. How do you maintain those at such a large scale that you have? Because you've encountered so many amazing people. So uh, one of them, I would say, just from a simple perspective, is be the friend that you like to have. <laughs> you, you be that friend to other people. So by way of, uh, you know, how would you like your friends to share with you? You share with them the same things. And I, I think that some everybody's got something that they can share and put in play. Yeah. So be be the friend that you like to have. You be that you be that friend. And uh so uh, yeah, it was a saying that Bob Johnson used to say, and that was build your friends before you need them. And for mm -hmm. me on that one is kind of uh you know, the gifts that you have and the things that you have, share those with other people. And when it comes time where you need something back from somebody, you're not you're not borrowing something that you haven't already lent out to other people. And so share, be meaningful, uh, give all of what you can. It could be making an introduction to another person when someone needs something. It could be loaning or giving money away to somebody. It could be taking getting somebody into. I've gotten into multiple events, and when I turned around there was somebody else who wanted to get in and rather just going in and closing the door behind me, I opened the door a little bit longer and got them into the same room I was getting into. Mm. There was a uh, early on in my career uh, back in, uh, it would have been like back in 1989. I remember I, I was going over for a meeting uh, at WLRM, which was the, uh, which was the, uh, uh, the PBS radio station or the NPR radio station in Miami, Miami. And I was going over there to meet with them, to ask them to broadcast the live concerts that we were doing at the Miami way theater, uh, Philip Michael Thomas's theater at the time. And I'm getting, I'm getting on the elevator. I'm going upstairs to meet with this guy, uh, Don, I'm blanking on his last name. And I see someone walking toward the elevator door. Mm -hmm. And instead of just letting the elevator door close, I, put my hand out really quickly, swiped the thing and the elevator doors opened up. The guy gets on the elevator and uh, he says, well, thank you. And so I, I could have just been lazy or said, you know, I don't care, like, you know, the door's closing. No, I want the extra mile to open the door up for the gentleman. And I get upstairs and it turns out that's who I was coming to the radio station to meet. <laughs> wow. So 
Crazy. The vibe of me saving the door to, you know, open the door for him where he appreciated it and thanked me for it versus like it would have been wholly different if I just let the door close and like, yeah, okay, yeah, you're the guy who let the door close on me, you know, and didn't let me up on the elevator. Whereas he gets on the elevator, I said, hey, how are you, you know, you know he, he said, thank you, it was really nice of you to keep the elevator door open for me. And I was like, yeah, no problem at all, you know, hope you have a good afternoon, not knowing that I'm about to, go, that's the person who I'm gonna go, go meet with. So yeah. it made all the difference in that meeting and that actually helped really, that was one of the integral things, which was a stepping stone in my career, which was this radio series, this jazz series that I did uh, on radio in, in Miami, in Metropolitan Miami, uh, that actually, one of the people who was a board member of the Chamber of Commerce heard the show and ended up coming to the theater, saw the show, and she was the one who made the introduction for me with the tourist board in, in uh, Aruba. So who knows if that meeting had gone differently, that one little thing of being kind enough to you know, open a door for somebody. I try to, I try to have that same type of uh, mindset when I drive, when you see somebody cutting in front of you. Yep. It's like, we all do it. Everyone cuts people off invariably at different times for different reasons. Mm -hmm. And so rather than be angry and blow the horn at them and start an argument, just like, hey, I cut off people sometimes I try not to, but sometimes I do if I'm trying to swipe in a lane or something. So let me just, you know, share an act of kindness and or let someone in, <laughs> like wave yep. them in because you see they're under some degree of distress. So that's what I try to do in my life. And that's part of the affirmations that I work, that I, I say to myself in the morning and in the evening on just trying to be a, a better person and, and having a, a quality life. I try to live that on a daily basis and that to me is part of the whole thing about building relationships. And that has been truly one of the greatest blessings of the whole of my career have been the relationships that I've been able to build and keep over the course of my career. That, that's, and, and it's so reassuring to hear you say that, brother. Because I told you a little bit in the green room, and it's, and it's crazy that that one, one situation led to so many other opportunities and how the stars aligned for you. Like for me, brother, I started, man, I was in sales, man. I was tired of sending emails. I had a good quarter. I have a bad quarter. I sell a meal here, a meal there, all these other things. I leave a job, all these other things. And I'm like, man, it has to be a better way to do this. I knew if I connect with you and I'll tell you who I am and I have these conversations and, and let you know what I have to say and provide value, I could have more relationships. I could drive more sales. <clears throat> I went on LinkedIn, man. Hat and hoodie, man, every single day. Just started pulling my phone out, started talking, man, and started building those relationships. And I ended up closing $2 million without an email, brother. And just telling my story and being great, just just like this, man. And I just have these conversations to hear you say that relationships are so important. And the relationships that I'm establishing right now with people like yourself, man, just just means the world to me, brother. And I and I would also love to know, man, because I know there had to be of time in your career. What 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 was one of the toughest things you overcame in your career? Like, when, what were the biggest lessons that you may have learned from all these different you know scenarios that and things you've overcame in your career, brother? What's one that sticks out? Boy, uh, uh, I guess one would be that sometimes survival is success. So mm -hmm. I mentioned the length of my relationship with BT from consulting and uh, being an executive. You don't survive. Uh, you don't. Uh, you don't survive uh, 26 years with an organization in corporate America unless you're uh, truthful yeah. in your conduct. And um, you, you're not building enemies by way of like cutting people off, uh, coming behind them, talking behind people's backs. You think that something is done in secret, but it rarely is. And so th those are just some really simple ones. And then as far as if each year for Soul Train, we had like different things, like each show was its own unique animal. There was no Soul Train Awards that was anywhere near the same, even though you have the same host. So different stories, working with artists, uh, like that is a, that's a piece of work <laughs> to work with artists. They're some of the most incredible human beings on the planet. A lot of personalities. Puzzles and yeah, a lot of personalities to work with. So I'm not going to shout anybody out <laughs> other than say like that was an experience into and of itself on a, a consistent basis. Mm -hmm. So that, that would be a part of it. And then also uh, on the, music festival side, we did festivals in 
Indonesia. We did tours of India. Uh, one year was Herbie Hancock, uh, Wayne Shorter, Shaka, Dee Dee Bridgewater. Another year was Al Jarreau, Stanley Clark, George Duke, uh, Robbie Coltrane, and Earl Clue. Where you're touring them throughout a third world country, or some you know, some people might say a second world country, yeah. but it's like some of the, like tours were were kind of really unique animals as well. And then festivals, uh, boy, festivals. What else I'm thinking? Um, St. Martin, uh, St. Lucia, Cayman Islands, Jamaica, Barbados, Trinidad, <laughs> Anguilla. Uh, uh, wow. Did I say Turks and Caicos? Yeah, Tur yeah Turks and Caicos, uh, Ghana, Accra, Ghana, South Africa. In South Africa was Durban and Johannesburg. Wow. And uh, I don't even remember all the tours, but yeah, loads of them. So every one we had like kind of struggles and things in that in that market where you did it for Amsterdam. That was uh, that was eight venues across the city of Amsterdam over a two week period of time. Uh, St. Lucia, the first year we did those. It was that was a third world island. And St. Lucia was very rudimentary in the, in the uh, early 90s on that one. Uh, we would have sometimes like eight to 10 venues across a third world island and like to be able to pull those off each one kind of had their unique struggles and oh. we had musicians who got stung by bees and uh, a wasp attack we had musicians who fell in the water uh that got injured uh when we did the the uh cayman islands jazz festival uh, one of the musicians fell off the stage and had a concussion and oh, did no. not miss the beat and kept singing uh, until he realized what happened. He was on the ground. <laughs> we all panicked and he's still holding the note and fell. And it, like with the, then had to do like a bandage wrap around his head. It was, it was like, there's, there's so many different things from an overcoming perspective. <laughs> Shout out to whoever He said, and didn't miss the beat. Shout out to whoever that didn't is. Didn't miss the beat. Didn't miss the beat. One, one of the greatest boy bands of all time. I'll just end with that one. They had mega hits. Did not miss a beat, and and uh, just an amazing, amazing musician and soldier. So those, and then uh, business obstacles, and uh, now I'd say it's like we're more in the phase now of client satisfaction. Like it, people are looking for high demands on value for the work that you do for them nowadays, and that only continues to get harder over time. Like uh, providing value, client value, like meaningful client value and being able to survive some of those events and uh, work through them, deliver value, get paid, and uh, keep moving on to the next project. So That's there's, it. I've had hundreds of obstacles to overcome over the course of uh, what's now closing, on, closing in on being a, uh, closing in on a 40 year career. That's amazing, brother. That's amazing, brother. Then on the flip side, then, right? Because you've also done a lot of great works. Is there one that sticks out that you're really, really proud of? If, you know, what was one that you would hang your hat on right now if somebody yeah. asked you one work, one project? Well, so so that's a question that I had been asked before, Jared, is, is like if there's one major significant one. And on that one, my response is generally now there's, there's like there's been so many. We did uh, we did Eric Benet in Central Park one year for the Tall Ships with uh, JNR Music World, like Central Park was one of my just like kind of, you know, bucket list things to to accomplish. We we produced a show on the mall with the Indonesian embassy here with their national instrument called the Onklong. And we had 6,000 people play the Onklong at the same time that one of their masters came over from Indonesia and ended up playing uh, Michael Jackson. Uh, was it uh, We Are The World? Yeah, it was We Are The World. On, right on the grass with the Washington Monument right above us. We produced the 75th anniversary of Marian Anderson, uh, her great concert in 1932 uh, on, at, at the Lincoln Memorial. She wanted to originally play Constitution Hall, which was run and owned by the Daughters of the American Revolution, and they wouldn't let her play there. So uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Eisenhower's wife, um, no, not Eisenhower, uh, Roosevelt. Uh, 
Right. May, is it the first lady, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. Thank you. Eleanor Roosevelt uh, had her play on the mall and had the secretary of the interior like set up the Washington mall. Well, we did the 75th anniversary of that at Constitution Hall. And we had three, a choir of like 330 people. It was the Winans brothers. The, the, the uh, MCs were Wolf Blitzer, Malcolm Jamal Warner, uh, MC Hammer. And it was a 300, and, and Mary, uh, uh, was it Leontine Price, who was the, the diva? Yeah, so, and we had, so that was just, that was just, and that was an amazing production. Uh, Allison Cambridge as well was in it. And so uh, we did that one, and in conjunction with the Congressional Black Caucus, we did that. We produced United Nations Day on the floor of the General Assembly with Stevie Wonder. And that, like Stevie is one of my just all-time heroes growing up. And to be able to produce that, we, that show was, was uh, uh, Valerie Simpson, B.B. Winans, Wycliffe, Dougie Fresh, uh, Sting, uh, India's uh, foremost uh, uh, violinist, uh, Manny, uh, Manny Subramanian, uh, the Dirty, Dirty Dozen Jazz Band, uh, and that was like on the floor of the General Assembly of the UN. Like you, like you've seen pictures of the UN all your life, and now you're there, producing. And Stevie was the he was the he was the goodwill ambassador for the UN. He's the only individual that's ever produced UN Day. It's always been a member nation. So we we like produced that in conjunction with Stevie and Creative Artists Agency. So uh, yeah. White House Productions. Soul Train Awards, like each of them were unique, did that for five years. So now there isn't just one. I really couldn't answer that just to say that there was just that one one that was just so overwhelmingly uh, blew the other ones out of the water. All of them were equal in stature and just to me like, yeah, truly, truly amazing uh, production. We worked with the city of DC on Emancipation Day and did some pretty incredible debates with uh, black leaders on the left and the right. And so, I, yeah, I can't answer that question with one thing I'd have to say, there's been a multitude of them. The, the, more, the more you say, brother, the more I get amazed that it's like, man, what, what a life that you've, you're living, brother, and like how inspirational it is, brother. And I also wanted to ask you, you know, I'll ask you one more question. I know you're running over time, brother, and I, I appreciate you. So me, I'm also a parent. Mm -hmm. brother. I have a 14-year-old son, right? So one mm -hmm. of the things I'm trying to do, man, I, you know, I, I'm dad. I could never be the cool dad, right? Even though I could be doing all this cool shit. I'm trying to bring my son into the business. I'm showing him, you know, I'm helping. He's, he's helping me grow the business, all these things, right? Like, have you ever had that situation with your kids? And how do your kids view? Like, do they see dad who does all these things? Or is like, or is it just dad? And how do you kind of bridge that gap? You know what I mean? Because you, you know. Yeah, you I do. So it is just dad. It is just that a hundred percent is just that. And when dad told me he's taking the trash out and doing <laughs> fundamental things around the house. So it's a hundred percent just that. But I think with children, it has to, that light bulb has to snap on its own inside of their brain. And I don't believe that you can do that for them. I think they have to find that 100%. into and of itself. And so uh, my, my son, uh, Lucas, who's now in college in Michigan and he's 18 and he, uh, I really wanted I like, I love basketball. It's like one of the deepest, most passionate things in my life and uh, still play basketball. And I wanted him to love it and I pushed it and I would, I enrolled him in different cl uh, basketball clinics and classes and stuff. And he really, he liked video games more. And then one day during COVID, it clicked for him. I had already taken him to an all-star game the year they had it in Charlotte. Mm -hmm. And it clicked for him. And he developed a passion for it. And now he's overwhelmingly passionate and he's studying sports management and wants to go into basketball. And so I didn't, I didn't push it. Like, I, like it wasn't anything that I pushed or something I can take credit for other than maybe planting the seed. But he's already shown me from what he's learned and amassed in his learning, he knows more about parts of the game than I do. And I have been a long time. I've been watching basketball since black and white in the sixties when everything was on tape delay. And so now I've got a son who 
the 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 amount of knowledge that he has about the game is broader than mine. I couldn't be happier, couldn't be prouder. So I think as a pa- as a parent, you really have to be patient. And uh, what's the scripture? Uh, you know, bring up a child in in the way that he should, and, and his learning, he'll come back to it. I'm yeah. Not quite quoting that scripture quite correctly, but that's the gist of it. So put the example in front of them, teach them as best you can, and then leave it to them to. Uh, to uh, to kind of gather from there. My youngest daughter, Chloe, uh, told her mom the other day, like she, she came over and I was watching, uh, I, was, I was like kind of nodding in and out of a, a, a documentary on Babe Ruth. As soon as the Babe Ruth documentary ended, it went, the next step was a Muhammad Ali documentary. Mm-hmm. So we ended up watching uh, Antoine Antoine Fuqua was the producer of it. I'm not sure if it's LeBron's production company. It may have been LeBron's production company mm-hmm. that did it, but it was the first Ali Frazier fight. And then we watched the the uh, Rumble in the Jungle. And now, once a week, we're watching boxing. And she said to her mom the other day, "Lucas has basketball with dad, but I've got boxing." And so uh, tonight we're going to watch uh, Frazier for- Foreman. Uh, Foreman Ron Lyle. So I, because I watched those uh, fights as a kid and they were like otherworldly for me. And as a kid, I got to meet Muhammad Ali when I was 15 uh, at his training camp in, in uh, Berrien Springs, Michigan for a week. Every day I went and saw him train. He was training for the, uh, was it, I think it was um, Jimmy Young fight. And then I met him again a number of times when he was older. And like, to me, once again, like the opportunity to meet your heroes, there's nothing short of it, nothing more amazing than the opportunity to meet your heroes. But I'm now able to share that with my daughter. And she picked that up on her own without me kind of pushing it. As parents, that is something that we sometimes do is push our kids. But I think that from a learning perspective, if we can kind of lay some seeds there and leave them the patience to find themselves that often they do. That, that's real, man. And I, I appreciate those gen packs. And before we go too, brother, I'm going to let you know, man, if you come to New York, man, I'm going to have to get you on the court packs. And you still, you got it, man. You still, you got the knees. I might have the jump shot still, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing. Uh, my basketball game is called the pit and it's, uh, it's three on three. It's uh, no take back. Winner keeps the ball. We play to 11 by one or two. Uh, one point is just put back uh, more often than that, or it, we have the NBA three-point line. That's two points. So it's 11, 11 by one or two. There's no uh, ticky-tack fouls. So there's no charging, no blocking. Are we playing jail? Set a pick, Come on. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. You set a pick, don't put your hands over your balls and think that that's going to stop somebody from knocking you over because if you don't set a pick like a football pick, you will get knocked over. No flopping. If the ball leaves your hand and you get hit, your hand gets hit on the other side of the ball leaving your hand, that's not a foul if it doesn't interrupt your shot. So we've had plenty of pros play with us. Roy Hibbert and Jeff Green play with us different summers. And uh, we've had loads of pros who play pro ball in Europe. And um, you got to be careful talking shit because <laughs> if you don't back it up with physicality. So I never – Give me, three months to get play, my shit together. Give me three months to get my shit together. I'm back. I never talk before I play. I never, <laughs> ever talk before I play. <laughs> but so, yeah, it's a hardy. It's a man's game. It's hardy. Ain't not, no flopping, no soft calls, or you get argued off of it. So, yeah, we played basketball like the bad boys played basketball back in the 80s. The so, yeah, you were John. Yeah, Scott, the Pistons. Baby. Yeah. <laughs> See my boys, they like be yeah. careful. But brother, last question yeah. get out of here, brother. Mm-hmm. Um, and I gotta ask you, and this is straight from the heart, man, because I'm I so much appreciate. It. I look forward to this conversation, brother. Um, you didn't know me from a hole in the wall, man. I reached out to you on LinkedIn, and the fact that you took time out your busy today to come on my show to to give us game, it means a lot to me, brother. And I'm just curious, what made you do that, brother? You were persistent, and you asked. And I said to you earlier on being the friend that you'd like to be, I was you, <laughs> I, like I'm 62 now. So mm-hmm. I was, how old are you, uh, Jared? I'm 30, 34, brother. 34, so I was 34 at one point. It was almost <laughs> 30 years ago, but I was 34 <laughs> at one point. And there have been so many people who've opened the doors for me. 
and who were kind to me when they didn't need to be. There was no thing they could gain from being kind to me. One of them was Clarence Avon, uh, yeah. the Black Godfather. Yes, and sir. His story's on Netflix now. So I met Clarence when I was, I met Clarence when I was 30 at backstage at a, at a new edition tour in 1991 uh, at the old, uh, Capital Cap Center in Landover, Maryland, right outside of D.C. And uh, it'll be at, it, when you see his story, if you, like for those who haven't seen it, go on Netflix and catch it. It's called The Black Godfather. I lived through all of that with him. And the, the big brag at the end from Kamala Harris and from a few other people was that Kurt, that, that uh, Clarence never cursed them out. He never cursed me out. He cursed a lot and he <laughs> curses a lot. And he's got one of the you know, most outrageous mouths of anybody in modern history, but it's there's so much wisdom that spews forth from it. And not long after I met him, my next trip to Los Angeles, I'm literally sitting in his office uh, for hours of time. He had one of those old phones. This is like literally 1991. And the phone, the old cords that used to crumple up and yeah. like, they, you'd have to unfold them every night. He, well, he never unfolded his. And so I'm sitting there uh, with his feet up on the desk and his rubbing, rubbing his tummy and I'm sitting there listening to him talk to Andy Young, Maynard Jackson, Bill Clinton, uh, uh, Hank Aaron, L.A., yeah. Babyface, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Yeah, the legends. Bill Withers. Yeah, like just an amazing array of people. And upon listening to him do that, one of the things that one of the light bulbs that clicked on in, in my mind was I, I could do this, like I could be this person. There's, there, there's no reason that I can't have a wide, wide array of relationships across all spectrums of business. And that was a challenge to me was to emulate that. And, and like, I, it was just incredible to me to like see a black man do that. It was like, I could be that person. And then the year after that, uh, Harry Belafonte called me up in June of like the summer of 92. And, uh, and, and asked me to work with him. That was my first opportunity to work with Harry Belafonte, uh, looking to build out a festival in uh, Barbados. And I met, um, um, I, oh, I met John Johnson mm -hmm. uh, when, I, when I was working with Philip Michael Thomas. And when I went to his, his office in the building in Chicago, it was like the only building that a black man owned in, uh, in Chicago. And he literally met me at the elevator. Mr. Baker, I've been waiting for you. Like, so nice to meet you. And it was just like, I'm like, I'm meeting John Johnson of Ebony. <laughs> like, just, wow. you know. And so uh, Clarence and Harry have been abiding figures in my life. Harry's a surrogate father to me. Eddie Levert is as well. There's a brother in Trinidad named Leroy Clark, who's Trinidad's foremost uh, 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 painter in, in Trinidad. And like, uh, Bill Withers was a big brother to me. Uh, Verdine White is is a big brother to me. Uh, I could like Jeffrey Osborne, Freddie uh, Jackson, uh, thirty plus years friends with Wentworth Marcellus. But for the older cats and sisters, there's been a number of sisters as well who who've influenced me and embraced me. Like those people, that impression and what they did in my life, I can never equal. Yeah. So when young brothers and sisters come up and ask me for advice and ask me to share things that I've learned, I do it because it was done for me. And so, yeah, so. you talked about children. I, I hope that the, the, the love and sharing and the gifts that I've given in my life to other people, my children could ideally be the beneficiary of some of those gems of things that others did for me. And I've been able to, blessed and fortunate enough to do for other people as well. So it's, it's that those things are never lost on me. And that's, that's part of, for me, like why I've been able to have uh, friendships that have been 30, uh, 30 year plus friendships. Uh, Stanley Clark, I met when I was in college in 1984. B.B. Uh, Winans and I met in 1988, like decades long friendships. And so being able to share with someone like yourself, you asked me, but you were persistent as well. And so uh, <laughs> persistence is, is the thing. So I, I'd be remiss if I didn't do share two more things before I get off your show. I appreciate you. Uh, one is volunteerism. 
and uh, charitable giving and charitable work. That's an integral part of my life that my mother taught me uh, was volunteerism and basically doing more for people than people do for you. And so it's to me of critical importance to give back, to share your blessings with other people. That's one. And then two is the book Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. I, I was given that book by a older white gentleman at 17 years old. I was, I was living in Russellville, Arkansas at the time. And I was a high school dropout when he gave me that book to read. And that book has been the most integral game-changing book in my life outside of the Bible. But my success secrets, my success principles that I've lived my life on came from that book, uh, Think and Grow Rich. So number one is positive mental attitude. Number two is sound physical health. Number three is harmony and human relationships. Mm-hmm. Number four is freedom from fear. Number mm-hmm. five is hu- uh, hope for a future achievement. Mm. which to me is putting goals out there for yourself. Manifest. And when people ask the question about, you know, did you ever think that you'd, uh, you know, be able to, you know, be part owner of a baseball team at when I was younger, the answer, it wouldn't have even crossed my mind. But once I started putting goals in place for myself and the opportunity came up, I was like a, a, a pit bull on biting onto something and you couldn't shake me off because I was there. <laughs> So addition to that is the capacity for faith, the willingness to share your blessings, a labor of love, which is to me, once again, uh, giving, and, uh, and then uh, self-discipline and open mind on all subjects, being open-minded and not thinking you can't achieve something or something is beyond your reach and open mind. Uh, the capacity to share your blessings. And then the last one is economic security, which I shared with you earlier uh, from the perspective of... Uh, from the perspective of being financially prepared to uh, jump on something when the opportunity comes to you. You can be in the real estate space and you're selling real estate, but you know, suddenly like now, no, you've actually saved up enough money to buy and to be able to do projects. And then uh, friendships from the perspective of like-minded people who are positive, trying not to be around negative people. I'm really good on that, <laughs> on that being around negative people. And when opportunities pop up, I've got good friends who've got paper who can invest with me and uh, they've seen me make money. And so they have the confidence in me that I'm going to uh, make them money. And I have a really good track record of making money for people who come into my investments with me. My man, brother, thank thank you so much for these gems. First of all, brother, I got I got to make a joke, man, because I you know I'm Martin's my favorite show, and my favorite episode is when he has Simon in the skybox. You remember that one, the Simon in the skybox, where he had him when Pam, Pam's boyfriend was an older gentleman and he owned a team. Mm-hmm. He called the timeout on the Pistons and all that, but that's my favorite episode, bro. And it reminds me of you and everything you said is so true, brother. Like. You don't know what this opportunity is doing for myself right now. I've got brothers, cousins. I've got, you know, my, my son's godfather. I got people I work with in this chat right now that are, are in awe of, of the journey and story. And the fact that you took time, man, I just started my own business. I'm, I've got the entrepreneurial fire burning right now and I'm going for it, brother. So just to hear the gems from you, man, I was like a sponge, man. I'm like glued to my seat. And I just want to say thank you again from the bottom of my heart, my brother. This means a lot to me. And uh, I'm rooting you're, for you. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. So, yeah. so I, I did say like those two last things from the perspective of the think and grow rich and volunteering, yeah. but this will be the last one. And that is, uh, I don't believe that there's anything that I've achieved that other people can achieve as well. And so when I look at the great works of people before me and uh, Dr. King is one of my abiding heroes and Dr. King always talked about servant leadership. And I aspire to that in my volunteerism is servant leadership and uh, to be the person that people can aspire to come behind to do things because like it's, it's, I wear it on my heart, my volunteerism, I wear it on my heart. I don't believe that there's nothing that if you, if you write out your goals and put in front of you, that, that whole concept of whatever the mind of man can believe and conceive, the mind of man can achieve, or the mind of woman can achieve, I wholly believe that because it's manifested itself in my life. I was the youngest of six children by natural birth, adopted to, my parents adopted two of my uh, cousins. I was the youngest of eight. 
born wow. in Compton, California in 1960. Wow. And I have uh, learning disabilities, dyslexia, uh, uh, severe ADHD. Wow. A lot of learning disabilities that they take medicine for now or have special classes for. I was that kid, three-time high school dropout. And so I uh, talked my way into junior college and got an associate's degree and qualified for a GED. So there's nothing that was special about me from that perspective of like, I've got more things up on other people because of how my life, silver spoon, I wasn't the kid that was like driven enough to say, oh, I wanna go to college for four years. I went to junior college for two years, took two years off in between junior college and college and ended up uh, graduating from Temple University. And so there's nothing that was just that special. It was like, you can't look at me and say, hey, you know, you got these breaks. It's like, no. No, you put in the work, brother. I, I didn't. You put in the work. So if I did it, you can do it. My That's man. the point that I'd like to leave you with. And don't ever let anybody tell you that you can't. Blow that. them out of your life if they tell you that you can't. That's it. And we're going to end off. I'm going to drop the mic on that moment, guys. This episode Peace. is going to be anything possible. Peace out. <laughs> uh, thanks again for joining another episode. My brother, much love. My man. brother, peace, Jerry.